All right, so if you will, this morning we're going to be working from Luke chapter 12. If you would like to join me, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 7. So if you want to join me, I've learned that I get a little excited and start reading. So I'll wait a second. All right, starting at verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. But even the hairs of your head are all counted. Do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. This section of scripture can be initially intimidating at times. I mean, don't fear those who could kill your flesh. Fear God who could deal with you after you're dead. It's kind of intimidating. However, this isn't intended to provoke fear or shame about how we've lived life. Instead, we might focus on the message as being, what God thinks of us matters more than what anyone else thinks of us because we matter to God more than we matter to anyone else. For those who know God, it doesn't or shouldn't come as a surprise that we as God's creation are invaluable to God. What is surprising, though, is that many of us, if not all, more often than not live day-to-day trying to find our worth in the opinions of others. It's part of the human condition. There is a saying that says, a lion does not concern itself with the opinions of sheep. I find this extremely profound and probably inspirational, but far too often the buck stops there. As small children, we generally don't mind living however we want to live. We see it in little children now. They're unashamed in what they like and what they dislike, and their worldview is rarely concerned with the opinion of others. If they want to sing a dance, they're going to sing a dance. If they're going to scream because they want to, they're going to scream. If they want to wear a cowboy hat or a tutu to the store, they are going to wear a cowboy hat and or a tutu to the store. At some point along the way, though, these things change. Either they are taught differently or they become aware of the opinions of others. And, like, because of this, change their ways. Awareness of others at some point in development shifts our worldview and our thinking. What is accepted is often shaped by the thoughts, views, and opinions of others. If all else fails, we come to this harsh reality about the same time that we learn about peer pressure. Perhaps you are or were a strong individual growing up that fought against the status quo and other people's thoughts didn't really get to you. Or maybe you're much like myself and you find yourself in the camp I like to call the land of the people pleasers. What people think really matters because we want everybody to be happy and to like us. Regardless, we have all at some point felt the need to conform to the opinions of others. But why is this? After some time and thought, I landed on the thought that maybe it's because of our immediate reality. As humans, we get caught up in in the present. What we can see, what we can hear, what we can touch it's often hard for us to separate ourselves from our immediate reality. There's nothing wrong with this. We're certainly not the first to experience this issue. We see this come to head in scripture through examples such as Adam and Eve in the garden, Samson and Delilah, and Ananias and Sapphira. What people think can often make us stray from what God has asked us to do or how God has asked us to live. I'm going to take from a few different stories, so if you want to jump to these scriptures, you are welcome. If not, I will read them to you. We're going to start with Adam and Eve in the garden, starting in Genesis 3. Starts out, 
starting at verse 1. You're all familiar with this, so. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat any of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eye, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and the sown fig and they sewed yeah sewed fig le- fig leaves together and made it made loincloths for themselves. Adam and Eve knew how God had instructed them to live, and the rules seemed pretty simple: live in relationship with me, and eat from any tree except for this one. These are not rules that leave room for interpretation or for question. It could not be more simple. However, enter the serpent and things start to get messy. We see the first outside opinion that contradicts God. God couldn't have said that, and if God did, God is only keeping the knowledge from good and evil from you. That's not a big deal. This isn't right of God. You deserve that too. And before we know it, the serpent has convinced Eve of something contradictory to God's instructions. And now we all get to pay the price. All it takes is one rotten apple to spoil the bunch, or one really convincing friend to lead us astray. We're going to move forward to Judges chapter 16. A little context for you. Samson, an Israelite judge, has awesome hair blessed by God to provide immense strength. He has fallen in love with a Philistine woman named Delilah, and this girl is not good news. She was working with the Philistines to find out Samson's secret so they could kill him. She manipulated Samson, and we start at Delilah's third attempt to figure out Samson's strength as she had lied, as he had lied to her twice before this. I mean, it was a secret after all. And we're in Judges 16. So starting at verse 13. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you could be bound. He said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and make it tight with a pin, then I shall become weak and like anyone else. So while he slept, Delilah took his seven locks and wove them into a web and made them tight with a pin. She said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he woke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me three times now and have not told me what makes your strength so great. Finally, after she had nagged him with her words day after day and pestered him, he was tired to death. Austin can also attest to this. I do this to him. So he, also, so he finally told her his whole secret and said to her, Fine, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite. To God from my mother's womb, if my head were shaved, then my strength would leave me. I would become weak and become like anyone else. You would think that the first or second time of Samson waking up to Delilah, testing out his, quote, weaknesses, and saying that the Philistines were upon him, Samson would start thinking, huh, I love this woman, but she keeps trying to get me killed. 
and hightailed it far away from her. But you know what they say, love is blind. Again and again, what we see is Samson giving false answers. Over time, however, through manipulation of the one he loved, Samson gives in to the questioning of Delilah. He is worn down by the persistence and the opinion of a human rather than the promise and strength of God. Literally, no hair equals no strength. Even people that claim to love us don't always have our best interests at heart. Love can be outlined as best found in 1 Corinthians 13, which you're probably familiar with. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always project, protects, sorry, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. Nothing about this description screams Samson and Delilah. Furthermore, love will not try to lead you astray or put you in harm's way. If we seek to live for God because we love God and know that we are loved by God, we will not need fulfillment in others. Rather, we will be the example of love as described. Samson allowed the feelings of his flesh to overtake his heavenly mindset. Unfortunate, to say the least. Next, we're going to turn to the story of Ananias and Sapphira, if you're still rolling with me. And that's in Acts chapter 5. Starting at verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and bought and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were there not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped his body and then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, Tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Look at the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. And they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. Although this might seem like a stretch, it is arguable that the couple lied because they wanted the church to believe that they were good, quote, Christ followers, and that they were also giving their all like everyone else. In the end, however, it probably would have been better and far like, likely far more, well, like, excuse me, and likely far more well received if they had told the truth and confessed or discuss their reasoning for keeping the money. While their intention for wanting to be seen as good Christians is not something to knock, is it worth a lie to achieve their goal? This further affirms that while we may be able to fool the opinions of others, ultimately God knows our hearts. Living for God means living in a way that is pleasing to God. That in itself is worth more than what others think. It's unfortunate when we see the opinions of others bring down someone that we know loves God and desires to do what God intended. All the individuals mentioned did desire a relationship with God. God saw them as worthy of having a relationship with. The downfall, however, was each individual's inability to separate the immediate from the eternal. 
something I certainly struggle with day to day. There are days where it feels nearly impossible to keep myself grounded in living for God instead of the immediate. It's part of being human. It is not, however, impossible to keep our eyes focused on the ultimate plans of God and to redirect ourselves and focus um, on living to God rather than others. Now on to something more uplifting, like individuals that cared more about the heavenly reality rather than the immediate reality on earth. Some examples of people that clung to God's opinion rather than humans. Noah, Moses, Job, Mary, Jesus. The list could go on, which is an amazing thing. In scripture, what we see more often than not are examples of people that clung to God's opinion and promises rather than the trials of earth. Starting at Noah, Hebrews 11:7 says, By faith Noah, warned by God about events as yet unseen, respected the warning and built the ark to save his household. By this he condemned the world and became heir to righteousness that is in accordance with faith. In Genesis we read about God seeing Noah's heart among the corrupt world and God's willingness to save Noah and his family. When God instructs Noah to build the ark, while overwhelming, we read that Noah was faithful and did exactly as God commanded, down to the last cubit. We could imagine that in a region like Noah's, a boat of such great proportions would have seemed crazy. With scripture telling us that humanity was filled with so much evil, we would not be hard-pressed to assume that Noah faced trials and adversity while trying to be faithful to God's commandments. I am certain that there was temptation for Noah to think, surely God does not want an ark this big or that many animals. Are we certain that God wants to kill off all the evil in the world? And yet, we see that Noah was faithful, down to the last two unclean animals, as to what God had commanded. Moving forward to Moses, rather than reading his entire life story, which is like five chapters, um, I'm going to give you my version of the Reader's Digest. Moses' birth mother sent him down the Nile River in order to save him from being killed by Pharaoh. Incidentally, he is found by Pharaoh's daughter. He is raised as an Egyptian royal and discovers his heritage and flees into the wilderness. An identity crisis, if you will. God reveals God's self to Moses via burning bush and sends him back into Egypt to free the Israelites. Moses gets married along the way, meets his birth sister and brother, goes to Pharaoh and realizes, huh, now my adopted brother is in charge. He goes back and forth with his adopted brother and his opinions on what Moses should do, a.k.a. come back and be royal. I don't know who this Yahweh is. You are crazy. There's some face-off with what some would call magic and others would call miracles and some serpents. Plagues happen. People die. Israelites are freed. Moses clung to God's orders and promises, spends time with God, gets some commandments, keeps Israelites from straying from God, hangs out in the desert, and continues to guide the Israelites until death. Breathe. Moses does not stray from God or God's orders. Even when his family, both birth and not, and the people of Israel tried to convince him otherwise, if we would all remember Baal, the weird calf gold thing. Hebrews 11 writes about Moses. By faith, Moses was hidden by his parents for three months after birth, because they saw the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he grows up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share the ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered abuse suffered for the Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, unafraid of the king's anger, for he persevered as though he saw him who is invisible. 
By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch him or the firstborn of Israel. While Hebrew summary may be a little bit more formal and concise than mine, over and over again, as we look at the life of Moses, we see his relationship with the Creator. At some points, it is challenging. Nevertheless, Moses continues to pursue the desires of God and God's will. While we do see the struggle between the pressures and opinions of humans and the direction of God, Moses continually chooses the heavenly route. Faith is by sight. Job exemplifies this through his story, and we find in the book attributed to his name. This is one time that I go back on my promise. We're actually going to read the entire first chapter of Job. Sorry. There was once a name in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all people in the east. His sons used to go and hold feasts in one another's houses in turn, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the feast day had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this is what Job always did. One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Very well. All that he has is in your power, only do not stretch out your hand against him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine at their eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell on them and carried them off and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three columns and made a raid on the camels and carried them off and killed all the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine at their eldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came across the desert, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. I alone have a skit to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I come come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. In the chapters to come, Job faced questioning from his friends who were convinced he had done something wrong and was being punished for it. 
and Job maintains his innocence in the faithfulness of God. Furthermore, Job's wife tells him to curse the name of God and die. Job refuses, saying that the Lord is faithful and will be good to him. Although struck down by the horrible reality of losing children and all his wealth, Job maintains the faithfulness of God and God's plans. Not once does he bow to the opinions of his friends or even his wife. Job stays steadfast in his knowledge of the goodness of God, knowing that God loves him. It also doesn't hurt that in the end, Job is given more children and given back his wealth. Although nothing can give back the original children, which, sound, which should be noted, God did find a way to bless Job for his faithfulness. My final example, if you're still with me, is likely my favorite example, the example set by Mary, the mother of Jesus. If you would like to read along, I'll be reading both the birth accounts in Matthew and Luke chapters 1. I'm going to be starting in Matthew. At verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was bound to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she bore a son, and he named him Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, starting at 26, the story goes like this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is, and this is the sixth month for her, who is said to be barren. For nothing is impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. What is even more interesting in scripture is that we see what is called Mary's song starts at the end of 46 in the first chapter of Luke. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. 
His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. According to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Mary, a pregnant, unwed teenager in ancient Israel, praised God for choosing her to carry the Messiah. Mary thanked God for the opportunity to bring Jesus in the world, even though it could have cost her everything. Her pending marriage, her social status, and potential future opportunities for marriage. Mary trusted God to work in a desperate situation of being a young, pregnant, unwed woman. Mary knew that what God had told her through the angel Gabriel, and Mary trusted that God knew what he was doing with her future. We see Mary's faithfulness throughout her song and through her rejoicing, even in potential adversity. God works for Mary's good by revealing the plans for Jesus to Joseph, and in the end, both Mary and Joseph were blessed by the child Jesus. I cannot imagine the fear and anxiety that must have met Mary in the moments of questioning, and the moments when she is asked repeatedly, no, really, how'd she get pregnant? And the potential end of her engagement. Nevertheless, Scripture shows her faithfulness and clinging to the promises of God. Through the example of Mary and the others, we see that we are meant to live our lives in a ways that are pleasing to God, because we matter to God, and God so desperately longs not only to be in community with us, but to work in and through us. Christ's life in itself is a testament to this. Time and time again, Scripture shows us that God desires to know us, be in relationship with us, and allow us to be part of what God is doing on earth. There is nothing more important or anything more humbling. The creator of the universe wants us to know how loved we are, and how exciting is that? If this is true, why would we allow ourselves to be distracted by the opinions of others? Why, then, are we so tempted to stray from what God calls us to do in order to be accepted by those around us? When we look at Luke 12, it is not, be afraid that God will send you to hell, but why spend your life trying to please people whose opinions really don't matter when you already have a Heavenly Father that loves you so much he has numbered the hairs on your head? God is going to ask us to do some crazy things, things that seem exciting, scary, hopeless, awesome, so much more. But again and again, God proves God's faithfulness to us and shows us how worth it it is to live for God. We gain nothing when we live for the opinions of others. If we do gain anything, it is only going to last a lifetime, if that. The opinions of others, much like shifting sand, are fleeting and ever-changing. God, however, is everlasting and unchanging. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the consistent, and the eternal. God does not lie about who God is or what God desires. God is love. God desires relationship with us. God desires all of us and all of our lives. What a privilege it is to be able to live for our creator, to be so loved by our creator. So, if we are to live a life that looks that is for God and is pleasing to God, what does that look like? I have some suggestions. Let us model our lives after Christ giving all our all for the sake of the Lord. Let us be people that are so filled with God's love and focused on God's heart that we strive to serve others with the overflow of our hearts. Let us be people that there is no doubt that there is, quote, something different in the way we treat others. By treating them with love, 
hospitality, generosity, humility, and respect. No matter who they are, what they have or have not done, what their faith or what their faith, racial, or social background is. Let us be people that build longer tables and not higher walls. Let us be people that seek justice, mercy, and grace. May we be people who tell the truth and confess even when it's hard. May we be gracious and loving, forgiving those that have wronged us, keeping no record of it, like our Heavenly Father forgives us. May we take other people's confessions and hold them tenderly, careful not to treat them with shame or guilt. May we remind ourselves daily that momentary earthly trials will give way to a heavenly reality that makes everything worth it. May we keep ourselves focused on the desires of our Creator and live out of the love that is so freely given to us. As we end our time together today, and hopefully if it works, um, I would like for us all to spend time of reflection together. As we listen to this song and read the words on the screen, let us each contemplate the immense love God feels for each of us, and may we focus our hearts on how we can best live our lives for the joy of the Lord. Living for God is not about escaping wrath. Rather, it is about celebrating the love shown by our amazing creator. It is about focusing on the only voice that matters and tuning out the white noise that tries to distract us from the one relationship that changes everything. May the Lord be our vision and and our relationship with him the greatest joy of our lives. Lord, we thank you for how much you love us. We thank you for how favorably you look upon us. The fact that you know the number of hairs on each of our heads. The fact that we are worth more to you than anything else. God, I pray for us as we go out this week that we would focus in on what it means to live for you and not for others. And the joy and the honor that it is to be able to do so. God, I pray that you would allow us to contemplate in our hearts what that means to us. I pray, God, that you would be our vision, the Lord of our hearts, and that, God, we would just be filled with so much joy in the fact that we get to live every day knowing you and being loved by you. Lord, we thank you for the lives in this place and the lives that you have allowed to come through here. I pray that you would bless us and keep us. In your name we pray. Amen.